The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 25. Very familiar set of verses today, but we're not going to let that... um, calls us to treat it as a common thing. God's word is living, and uh, every single time we come to it, uh, it has the power to change us and help us. So praise God for that. Today, we are continuing our series. It's called Holy Reflections, God's Design for Singleness, Sex, and Marriage. Last week, we looked at singleness through the lens of the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We talked about the fact that singleness is a gift, uh, whether someone has been anointed by God to set aside their whole life in singular devotion to him, or if someone is single for a season as a part of the story that God is weaving out of their lives. Uh, We took apart the false idea um, that singleness or marriage are superior to one another and learned that it comes down to the gifting and calling that God has placed on each person. This means, practically, that what other people consider normal when it comes to singleness relationships, and marriage is actually irrelevant. God and his supreme sovereignty did not build one blueprint for all people to follow regarding these things, but he lovingly crafts the details of each of his children's lives, which should erase the need for coveting and comparison among us, which is oftentimes what leads to pain and struggle in regards to singleness, marriage, and things of that nature. So, um, We dealt pretty extensively last week with the noble call to lifelong singleness in service of God's kingdom. Uh, We're going to be more focused on those this week who are not yet married. So what I mean when I say that, typically we think of people in in two buckets, either single or married. There's actually a third category, and that's not yet married, right? Because Corinthians tells us some people are gifted uh, for a lifelong devotion to God in singleness, singular devotion to him, they'll not be married, and so they they have a gifting and a calling for that, and so they are going to be single their whole life. There are also people that are gifted and called by God to be married, and and so display the gospel through that. Uh, There are also other folks that God has called and gifted to be married, but they are not yet married, right? And so we want to, we're going to focus in a little bit on that uh, situation, okay? So, um, Even though that's going to be our focus, I want us to be careful, those of us that may be in a relationship or married, um, as is always the case, the truth of God's word today will apply to many more than just those who are not yet married. And we should all be actively engaged because as followers of Jesus, we are not only disciples, but disciple makers. And thus, we should be able to encourage and spur all kinds of people on to love and good works by the truth of God's word. Okay, so the short way of saying that is, if you're married today, you can't check out because this is pointed towards somebody that is not yet married because you probably know someone that's single. And if you love God and love people the way the Bible calls you to, you're going to want to be able to speak to somebody that's not yet married in a biblically faithful way to help them with where they're at, right? You guys care about that, right? I'm talking to a bunch of disciple makers, right? Amen. Good. Awesome. That's exciting. All right. So, that brings us to the verses. Let's read those together, okay? We're in Matthew 6, and we're going to start in verse 25. 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Amen. Thankful to God for his word. Now, Jesus is using some examples of basic things that we tend to worry about as humans to get a point across. His overarching point in this is to seek first God's kingdom, and he will provide what you need for your life. That's what he's teaching, okay? If God has called you and gifted you for marriage then a husband or a wife fits squarely into this marriage of not letting anxiety and worry grip you in regards to that thing. So if Jesus wanted to give more examples, it could have just as easily read this way. Do not worry about what you will eat or drink or wear or who you will marry or when you will marry, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Okay? Jesus' overarching message is about worry. Can you trust me? Will you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, understanding that then provision comes from God? Do you understand that things get messed up and messy when you start seeking after things, other things other than God and his kingdom, first? When that becomes the highest priority, that's when stuff starts to go sideways. That's when destruction creeps in. That's when bad things start to happen. So don't do that. Trust me. Seek me, and I'll take care of you. Uh, this speaks to... This, this whole idea of, of Jesus teaching in this passage, this speaks to how we deal with the subject of desire, right? There's this idea in this seeking, we're going to seek after things that we desire, things that we need or think we need. Many people are frustrated with the desire to marry. They have this desire, it is currently unfulfilled, and it leads them to bitterness, doubt, shame, and discouragement. And it should not be this way among God's people. There are also mixed messages about the right way to deal with that desire. This is part of why this is hard. Some people, in the name of encouraging others towards contentment, talk as if they must totally get rid of that desire to marry until some undisclosed future time when God makes it okay. Some, misunderstanding the scriptures, tell people if they have that desire, then God will give it to them if they just have enough faith. The Bible does not teach that we need to kill godly desires or that God is going to grant every desire we have if we have enough faith. The Bible teaches that all our desires must be submitted to a greater and eternal desire to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every one of our desires must be submitted to that greatest desire, and any time that gets out of order, we start to have problems. Now, some of you are pushing back. You don't like that, because you like the idea, if I believe hard enough, I can get my desires. Okay. It is true that Psalm 34 tells us the Lord will give us the desires of our heart. You're like, ha, yeah, see, you forgot about that scripture. Preacher, I didn't actually. However, 
Forgetting the first part of that verse turns this precious promise into a paralyzing poison. The verse actually says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Really, really crucial distinction. Okay? Speaking about desires, I know for many people that are not yet married, they have this desire. It's a frustrating thing for them. And so we're going to try to get uh, some help and healing tonight by the power of God's word. So this idea that we delight ourselves in the Lord and then he will give you the desires of your heart, this is why Jesus, in his great love for us, instructs us to seek first his kingdom. Whenever we are seeking anything, even something that can be a good thing, more than we are seeking God and his kingdom, we will end up disappointed and frustrated. That's invariably. Any time you're seeking anything, even if that thing standing alone is a good and godly thing, if you're seeking that with more veracity and passion than you are God and his kingdom, there's an inversion of desire and priority, and you will suffer because of it. We can't get these desires out of order. We cannot just assume if the thing we desire is not sinful that the desire itself has not become sinful for us. We must always ask God to help us discern why we desire and what we desire most. We can't just assume that because a desire to be married in and of itself is not a sinful thing, that 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 very desire for what is potentially a godly thing and may even be a right thing for our life has not turned into us this into for us this, this issue of discontentment or ingratitude or impatience, okay? A desire for a lifelong covenant relationship with another created human can be a good thing. But it, if, if it is desired more than an eternal covenant relationship with our creator God, that desire is disordered and will lead to destruction every time. This truth has bearing on the practical part of singleness as well. A person whose desire to not be single drives them in a compulsive way is not appealing to anyone but another person being driven by a similar compulsion. Silly example time. Ready? You're not. Okay, I can skip that. Come on, if you want to, we're towards the beginning of the sermon. This is how it works, right? I make you laugh, then I kick you, Okay. So now it's the time to laugh, so you better get it in. <laughs> okay? All right. So consider with me the characters of the Lord of the Rings, right? Tolkien's great work, the Lord of the Rings. In, in that story, who would you like to get to know better and maybe see where it leads, right? You've got, of course, the first uh, choice, I would say, for most of the ladies. You've got Aragorn, right? The confident and skilled, rightful king of Gondor. Strider at the beginning. He's got his sword, right? Kind of mystic. See, I'm, I'm revealing things already, ladies. No, I'm just messing with you. It's okay. I'm not going there. Okay, so you got Aragorn. What about Arwen, the, the bold and passionate elf princess, guys? Yeah, you know, she's commanding water horses and all kinds of cool stuff, man. A little magic, a little sword play. I mean, right? Or maybe Legolas, right? The brave and fearless archer. Unfortunately played by Orlando Bloom, so that kind of skews the results of this poll a little bit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What about Galadriel, the powerful and mysterious elf queen, right? For some people, they might want to get to know her a little better and kind of see where things went. For some of you ladies, perhaps even Boromir, right? He's a little misguided and reckless, but he ends up on the right side in the end. He's got that thick, full red beard, right? So some of you might, you know, 
let's get coffee, see where it goes, right? Some of you might think about Boromir as an option. Some of you might, you might like to get to know him. <clears throat> but here, here's what I'm willing to bet. I'm willing to bet the farm on this, that none of you, not even one of you, would see any romantic potential in Smeagol, who only cares about one thing, right? He's all about getting that ring. He's all about getting that ring, isn't he? That's all he cares about, right? We wants it. We has to have it, right? Any of you looking at that like, that guy's, that guy's got potential. I think, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. No, you're not doing that at all. There's none of that thought happening whatsoever. Smeagol's not on the radar, right? <laughs> our highest motive for assessing the source of our desires and the order of our desires should be to honor God and obey him, okay? The highest motive for us dealing with this scripturally should be that we want to honor God and obey him. But also practically, when you let yourself get obsessively compelled by desire for human relationship, you can come off desperate like Golem. And that's undesirable. Is this not right, right? I mean, if, if, if this was the situation, you're, you're sitting at home, right? And you're, you're petting a picture of someone you just met yesterday, right? And after you text them twice in three minutes and, and they didn't answer, then you call four times in a row till they finally pick up. And they pick up and you go, what are you doing, my precious? Right? If they're going to be honest, they're going to be like, I was actually looking up how to block a number and for a place to move so you can't find me. I mean, that's probably where they're going to be at. They're going to be looking up, how do I avoid a stalker? They're going to be Googling, you know, how do you disappear? How much does it cost to get a new identity? Because you're freaking them out because you've gotten really weird and obsessive. Um, and, and that's a problem. People get really possessive and weird and they say crazy stuff because they are so desperate to have their need for affirmation and affection filled by a human. And they are forever frustrated because that is impossible. That is impossible. The desire to be loved and affirmed is universal. We were built for an eternal and intimate relationship with a God of perfect love. But listen to me now. No human will ever be able to meet that need. Ever. Sin has separated us from our perfect Heavenly Father and the only source of the perfect love we crave. And it is only when that relationship is restored through the grace of our Savior King that we will not be disappointed. It is a very frustrating pursuit to find an eternal and perfect love in any other place than where it's actually going to be found. And that's where a lot of people find themselves. Perennially frustrated, continually let down, because they have this universal craving to be loved and affirmed. And, and it's not to say that we can't get, um, to some degree, a reflection of the love and affirmation of God from people. He does allow us into each other's lives, both in marriage and in other relationships, to be a love and encouragement to each other. But when you're, if, if you're talking about that, that, that God-shaped hole in the side of, inside of every human, that, that, that deep need that each of us has, because what we were created for was uninhibited relationship with a perfectly loving God. If you were made for that, then you're going to desire that. And that's a good desire. But when that desire gets pointed to, and, and, and we have this belief that some human's going to be able to meet that, every single time you're going to be let down, you're going to end up bitter. 
you're going to end up frustrated. And oftentimes it ends up being frustrated with God, who all along was saying, don't do that, son or daughter. I have another way, a better way. John 5.44 says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? It's not going to work. So if I was to summarize the first part of the sermon, I want to say this. Desire for the gift of a marriage covenant is a good thing, as long as it is not greater than a desire for our covenant king. We must not blame God for giving us a desire for something and not instantly giving it to us, because that desire may be part of how he refines us and prepares us to receive the gift and not ruin it. I'll give you an example. My son, Max, really likes anything with a motor. Trains, boats, bulldozers, cranes, it doesn't matter. And he's literally been pointing out motorcycles on the road since before he turned two. Dad, bike! I'm like, son, stop. I want one and I can't have one. So if you'd stop pointing them out, it'd be super helpful. Thank you. Uh, He points out motorcycles, but he really, really likes trucks. And he is always so stoked when he gets to ride in dad's truck. It's, it's a big treat for him. So it's, it's cool when kids are young, right? Because I took my kids to the McDonald's play place yesterday, and they thought I was like, you know, king dad of the world. Uh, you know, I realize in a few years it's not going to be that easy, but uh, I'm kind of enjoying it now. Let's hop in the truck. Woo! We're already excited. Off to Mickey D's. Of course, mom wasn't happy, but she left him with me, so. <laughs> That's kind of her problem, right? <laughs> uh, And I'm sure in my son's head, it would be unbelievably awesome if he had a truck of his own. But as a dad who loves him, I'm not going to buy him a truck and hand him the keys because that truck that he thinks would make all his dreams come true would be wrecked and ruined before he even got off of our street. I'm not going to do it because I love him, because I'm his father. The big idea that we're driving here is desire to not be single can be good and godly, or it can be evil and destructive. God-given desires will always push us closer to Jesus. Selfishly motivated or evil desires will cause us to be upset and dissatisfied. Okay? And, And the object of the desire is not always the way you determine whether it's a good desire, a godly desire, or an evil desire, because you can have an evilly selfishly motivated desire for something that's a good thing. And so what does this take? Well, this takes discernment. It takes the help of the Holy Spirit. It takes community. It takes other people uh, speaking into the thing. It takes you saying the truth out loud about how you're feeling and letting someone that loves you enough to say, hey, not sure that actually represents reality. And you being wise enough and humble enough to say, thank you. That stung, but the wounds of a friend are a beautiful thing. I figured there'd be a roarous amen at that point, and everyone, you know, we don't have tambourines, but I figured someone might have just popped one out of nowhere, so. All right, good. Now, I want to deal with some common lies that not yet married people tend to believe. My hope is to bring uh, healing and, and hope through the truth of God's word, so you will not waste any more time or energy, or suffer needless pain over things that aren't even true, okay? There's probably a myriad more uh, of potential things I could address, 
Um, and I would say if, if I don't hit specifically maybe some of the things you're struggling with, that, that's a, a good opportunity then to bring in others that are, you're in community with. Uh, I, I'm also open for conversation, but I think principally even dealing with the ones we're going to deal with, some of the principles uh, will, will travel past the specifics and be able to apply to other things if you're willing to let them do that. Uh, before I, I talk about these things and try to address these, these common lives that, that, that not, yet people, not yet married people tend to believe, I, I want to address something. Uh, I, I have seen a lot of blogs and articles lately with titles like um, 20 Things Not to Say to Singles, um, things like church cliches uh, or cliche things churches always say to singles, uh, and, and, and other similar internet dribble. Um, I just want to say that if you're single and you desire not to be, you probably aren't helped by reading an article by a discontent and bitter single person telling everyone they don't get it and not to speak truth and love because it's not helping. I'm not sure that's going to be the best place for you to find um, a godly perspective or a biblical framework with which to work through the things that you're struggling. If you're struggling because you feel unwanted or unloved and you're full of doubt and confusion about your own life and God's goodness because you have an unfulfilled desire for human companionship, then the most loving and helpful thing I or anyone else can do is lead you to God's word and expose any deceptions that you may be believing regarding these things. That process isn't always fun. As a matter of fact, rarely is that process fun. However, it is loving, and it is godly, and it is good. So I would just, I would just say to you, be careful, even of some highly regarded publications, the, the, the articles and writing you see on the issue of singleness, because I think some of them have drifted off of a gospel central course in understanding uh, and thinking about these things. Okay? Um, just have a Bible and, and the help of the Holy Spirit as you discern these things. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to filter and or, you know, censor anything. I'm just saying, um, not everything, you guys know this, not everything on the internet's true. I, I, I heard that recently, and it blew my mind, so it's changed the way I look at everything. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The, the writers of these articles would tell me, because they say it, they would say to me, well, you're married, so you don't understand, speaking to me. So they would say to me, I almost have no leg to stand on standing here speaking uh, from the scriptures to somebody that's not yet married because I'm married. First of all, unless married folks were somehow born betrothed, they were at some point single. Can, can we all agree on that? Okay. Secondly, and furthermore, if you believe someone has to be in exactly the same situation you are in to love you and speak truth into your life, then you're going to miss out on a lot of potential help and healing that can come through community and being connected to God's family. Don't believe that. Just because somebody's not exactly where you're at doesn't mean they can't speak truth and love into your situation. Doesn't mean they can't recognize deception that you might be believing that you aren't catching. They don't have to be right where you're at to relate. Okay? I'm not saying that's not helpful. I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends that are not in the same life stage as you so you guys can say crazy stuff to each other and then lovingly correct each other. Yeah, that's great. Do that. But could it possibly be wise to also have some people speaking to your life that have been there 
and now they're on to the next stage in life? And should you maybe not have people in your life that maybe aren't even at the point you're at yet where you can speak honestly about your struggles and speak the truth of God's word to them before they get there? I don't know. Sounds right to me. Good. I got a half a smile, so at least one person almost agrees with what I just said. So that's good. I feel like we'll put that in the W column. All right. Um, just, just be careful what you read. Furthermore, be, be careful what you receive as truth, because it's not all really jiving, to be honest. Okay, so um, I'm going to deal with specifically some, some lies that people believe. Okay, so here's the first one I want to say to you. Your other half is not out there somewhere. Okay, that's a romantic thing to say, and I understand why there's a drive to use that language when describing it, because, I mean, if I'm honest, I, at some point I purchased one of those little heart necklaces that are broken half, and they clink together, and it's, it's cute, right? And so, <laughs> be quiet, young man. Somebody's laughing at me in the back, so you think that's funny. Listen, man, I know how I come off, but I'm, I'm kind of romantic, all right? So ask Natalie about it. She's got stories. Um... <laughs> You don't, you don't catch a girl like that without having some romantic tendencies, all right? They don't come along very often, so, and they're hard work to catch. Um, but your other half is not out there somewhere, okay? So why, why do we say that? One, we just kind of think it's romantic and cutesy, and sometimes we're not careful about language and, and the implications that our language creates. Um, Sometimes we just don't have a biblical framework, but uh, I think sometimes people just don't like the way that God does math, okay? Because most people have at least heard, some people think of this idea that their other half is out there, and when they find that other half, then, then finally they'll, they'll be complete. Well, there's a real problem with thinking of yourself as a half a person, okay? Because the Bible doesn't see you that way. Ephesians 5.31 says that, and it's quoting Genesis 2, that two become one flesh, and then verse 32 says that this is a great mystery. And so just like in the way that throughout church history, we've tried to reduce the Trinity to something we can understand, right? So we're like, well, three in one, that's really hard to understand. So let me try to figure out some way that, you know, maybe this is God, you know, there's three gods or there's God shows up different ways at different times. It, it, it can't be that there's, that there's one God and three persons. Like how does how does that work, right? And so we, that, well, it's a mystery, right? You've hit one of those places where the infinite God of the universe that spoke everything into creation ha has superseded your ability to understand. Surprise, right? I'm so glad there's a bunch of those places where the God of the universe is outside of my ability to understand. That makes me say, yay, God, I worship you, not, well, we better figure out some way to make him fit in my intellect box, Okay, And maybe just not being that smart makes it easier for me to say, yay, I don't understand, I don't know. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, people have tried to change the math on that. right? One God, three persons, let's figure out some way to make that different. Well, also, two becoming one flesh when they come together. That's like, hold on, like two. Okay, I've got two. Maybe come, hmm. That doesn't work. I'll tell you what does work, though. If I make each of them a half and they come together, now i got one right? That's not a mystery. That's easy. You got two half of people. You got two people, you know, that they're whatever it is, right? Maybe we're each half a soul or half a heart. And when we finally come together, that Romeo and Juliet moment happens. And now we can be one person and live happily ever after. There's serious, serious implications to you believing you're a half a person that you got to run around till you find the other half. Okay, God doesn't see you as a half a person. And the real serious problem with that is that if you think of yourself as a half a person, 
you're invariably, you're going to move towards the idea of a relationship with another person, looking for them to come and fill up the other half of you, to come and meet a bunch of needs, to come and make your brokenness now not broken. And any relationship that starts upon a foundation of, I need you to come over here to do stuff for me, is busted from the jump. That's not what covenant relationship looks like. Jesus taught us what covenant looks like. What does it look like? How did he deal with us? He comes, does all the work, does absolutely everything, says, hey, I know you're not going to be able to keep up your end of the bargain, so I'm going to keep up your end of the bargain as well. I'm going to live perfect. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to purchase your redemption and trust me by faith, and that's how it's going to work. What did Jesus, what did Jesus teach us about covenant? Co- when, you're get, when you're coming to a covenant relationship, you're coming to give, not get. And so if you think of yourself as a half person running around needing to find the other half, how are you not coming to that thing with a jacked up selfish motive? It's going to be broke from the jump. You're not a half a person. And actually, you'd be really, really wise to ask God to help you assess by his Holy Spirit whether or not you are content and full and whole in him before you look to invite somebody else to come in and be that second person that joins together, now we become one flesh, right? We're not two half people making one. We're two people that God's going to join together in a way that is unbreakable for the entirety of the rest of our lives. And that relationship, something that looks like that, with that level of commitment, only works if both people are coming, looking to give instead of get. That's what Jesus taught us about love. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us. Love is not much of the hopelessly romantic platitudes that we've come to believe. And you're not a half person. And if you're not content with Christ, there's going to be struggle if you bring someone else into that and try to make them make you content. Amen, Pastor Vince. It's a mystery, isn't it? That two becoming one flesh. But it's okay. Some things stay that way. I don't totally get it. I'm glad God does it, though. I'm glad his supernatural power goes far above and beyond uh, what I can understand. Really grateful for that. Okay, so you're not a half a person. Your other half's not out there somewhere. Um, Secondly, your life is not on hold until you get married. Your life is not on hold until you get married. Many people feel stuck. Uh, They have what may even be a godly and properly ordered desire for marriage, but they don't even have any friendships with the opposite sex that could become something more, and so there's this frustration. They feel like they are paralyzed and stuck, and that is enough to drive a sane person crazy. I get it. I want you to understand as I'm saying this, I get what you're saying. I understand the struggle. I see how mentally you could get there. But it doesn't mean that just because it's possible to get there mentally that that's actually the truth and the way reality looks uh, from God's perspective, which is the one that matters. This idea that you're paralyzed and stuck until you're married, that you're, you're, you know, you get a sh- you're in neutral or park until, until you know, this, this covenant of marriage happens, the, the Bible knows nothing of this ideology. Now, some people in a well-meaning attempt to uh, trying to help folks who are struggling um, they, they have overprescribed marriage as the magic elixir to jumpstart living a purpose-filled and meaningful life. 
People will find somebody struggling. They're down in the dumps. I don't know what to do. You know, you know what you need? You need to find yourself a wife, young man. You know, you know what you need, sweetheart? You need to find yourself a husband. Oh, yes, that's great. They're struggling with identity issues, not sure where they're at, totally broken. And what we need to do is, is throw another human that's broken and sinful into that mix that's, and, and lash them together in covenant. Perfect answer. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, so they'll, they'll, they'll offer that as a way to jumpstart people living a purpose-filled life, figure that'll kind of get them, get them going. They'll often misquote Genesis 2 as evidence of this idea, that, that this is a valid way to think. People will say, well, in Genesis 2, God said it was not good for man to be alone. Maybe you were sitting there thinking that one. Hey, preacher. Hey, preacher, I've got a verse, buddy. Well, I'm glad you do. God said, and they'll say to me, God said it was not good for man to be alone. Okay. <clears throat> and so from this, they ascertained that Adam was in a holding pattern until Eve came on the scene and that any person who is not married is in this not good scenario. It is not good for man to be alone. That that's, and so from that, that means everyone needs to hurry up and get married. And if you're not married yet, it's not good. And you're in serious trouble. Okay? Here's, here's the issue. What God actually said in Genesis 2.18 was this. It is not good for the man to be alone. And I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the problem is people take what God did with Adam and try to apply it to everybody. That's not true. Adam, and, and go read it. Adam had already been given charge over the garden and named all the animals, kind of a big deal, before Eve came on the scene. God gave Adam a mission and then he made him a companion to help him. Adam was busy obeying God and fulfilling his mission and then, this is a key, God noticed and decided he needed someone alongside him in that mission. I think that's an important thing to remember in the story. Did Adam say, hey God, it's not good for me to be alone. Sup? No. Because he probably didn't speak English, but for other reasons too, right? So, no, it wasn't Adam that noticed he could use a companion and a helper. It was God that noticed it and crafted her and put her in his life, and he was already well into accomplishing the mission that God had given him, already in charge of the garden, already tending and taking care and naming animals and doing the stuff that God had given him to do. He wasn't sitting on a stump just drooling, and God's like, oh, I better help this guy, right? He's not going to get anything done ever if I don't send this woman, okay? That's not what it looked like. Um, I really believe that those who desire marriage but are currently single should memorize the story of Ruth. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily mean word for word, though that'd be great, but at least the highlights. You should understand what happened uh, in Ruth's story. Her, her story is easy to find because uh, she has a whole book named after her in the Bible. So you can look that up, check it out. It's four chapters, quick read. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're not yet married... I am very serious about this. I would commit to you the book of Ruth. And I would ask you to read it until you get it. And then read it some more. And then teach it to someone else. Because there's, there's things in here that will help. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of that. So here's, here's some of the highlights. She was a young widow who committed her life to serving God and loyally serving her mother-in-law. 
who was also widowed, but she was much older. Okay? Ruth was not focused on trying to find a husband. She was focused on loving and serving. And it was while she was in the fields working to provide for her, mother, her and her mother-in-law that a godly man named Boaz took notice of her. We're still talking about the fact that your life is not on hold until you get married. That's what we're talking about. Okay? So we, we took apart this, it's not good for man to be alone idea from Genesis. That's not what that's saying. And also we have a story here uh, of Ruth um, and, and the fact that it, she wasn't down at the city gate, you know what I mean, in, in, a, in a low-cut tunic trying to catch some guy's attention, and that's when Boaz showed up, right? That's not what it looked like. She was out sweating in the field on a mission to loyally serve her widowed mother-in-law and to gather enough gleaning. I mean, she was out there doing what poor people do. She was picking up the little bit of grain that got left behind by the reapers as they did their job. She was in a humble, servant, loving mission and then Boaz came along. Do you see why that matters under this point? It matters. Um, <clears throat> I, I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it. I, I don't want you to, th I'm not trying to make Ruth's story or even Adam's story, uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. I, I'm not saying that that has to be normative and that everybody's story looks like this. But, but for this principle, I, th I think I just, I, I've given you two biblical examples. I want to tell you kind of how it went for um, Natalie and I. So we were, <clears throat> we were both 16, and, uh, when, and so some of you are already super mad, <laughs> right? Well, I'm this age. We'll get to that in a second. Just, just hang with me. We were 16. We were both counselors at a kid's camp in Oklahoma. It was called Camp Dry Gulch. And so we were both down there. Um, essentially giving our summer to love little kids and counsel them through camp. And so um, if you've ever been to camp or ever been a camp counselor or something like that, it's a, it's a really beautiful, rewarding experience. We got paid like dirt. You know, it was, I, I could have made way much more, more money, you know, staying home and working at home, but um, really felt compelled because when I had gone to camp four years earlier, God had creased my life and, and the counselor had, had spoken into my life in such a way that it, it, it changed me forever. And so I, I wanted to be able to do that for other kids. And so, um, and, and God did some really miraculous things in me and Natalie as well, individually, as, as we were serving there. But uh, what happened was, you know, that's, that's where we met. And both of us were down there. Neither of us, I mean, the camp was pretty strict about, you know, you guys aren't here to play matchmaker, like we're here to minister to kids. And so, um, that definitely was not the focus, wasn't what we were supposed to be looking for. But I, I want to tell you guys, and this is, this is the honest truth, there's no embellishment to this part of the story. Um, I remember the, the, the camp is set up like an old west town, and uh, so it's got a couple streets, and, and all the girls' bunks were up by the dining hall, and the boys would have to walk from across the camp and come up. And so as we were walking up, it was time for the boys to eat, and the girls were out on their porch, I guess, getting ready probably for a chapel service that was coming. <clears throat> and Natalie and her partner were out there, and they were, they were playing games with the girls and doing their hair and whatever, and, and it was like, as, as I'm walking by, I could just see the anointing of God upon her as she was loving these little girls and ministering them and teaching them about Jesus and just doing their hair and, and just talking to them and, and investing in them. And, and it was, Natalie's beautiful. 
and, and, and her physical beauty, I'm not saying was not a factor, but I'm telling you, the thing that drew me to her was the fact that she was on mission for Jesus, and she was loving those little girls. And I joke, because the way I remember it, as I walked up the street, like, the, the sun would set towards the back of the dining hall, and you guys remember the show Touched by an Angel? It was kind of like that red-headed angel-looking girl, and every time she showed up, there was like, her hair was backlit. That's how I remember it. I don't even know if that was real, but that's the way I remember it. Kind of like how you see depictions of Mother Mary, you know, she's got like the halo in the back. But as she, she was just smiling, the girls were smiling, and, and I could tell their lives were being impacted. And so um, I, I came to love my girl on mission. And I'm not saying it has to happen like that, and, and I'm not trying to say that that's always normative. Sometimes people meet in, in really difficult situations, but God's beautiful redemption works through it, and it, and it becomes great. There's stories like that in the Bible, too. But I'm just telling you, if you're, if you're single and you want to be married and there's, there's nobody on the radar and you're frustrated about that, I, I would just say to you, if, if you really care about finding somebody that has the same passion you do to serve Jesus and to, and to be on mission for his kingdom for all of their life, you're, you're just probably more likely to bump into a person like that if you get yourself out on mission for Jesus instead of sitting in your room crying because you don't know somebody yet that fits that bill. Does that make, is it okay for me to say that? I'm not trying to be harsh. I love you. And I realize that this hurt is deep. And I'm not trying to, to come at you in any sideways type of way. I realize this is, this is real and it's difficult. And, and it, there's, a, there's a lot more lies that, that can be compiled on top of this. But you do not have to live in a paralyzed, frozen holding pattern until you're married. My encouragement to you would be find every possible way you can to be a part of God's mission. Of, of redeeming and saving the lost, loving people, reflecting God's glory to the world. And as you get out there and, and get on that mission, you got a super good chance. A, a better chance than sitting in your room reading articles by angry single people and or, you know, watching The Notebook 500 times. I'm not trying to be mean. It, does that make sense, though? You want to meet... If, 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 you're a, if you're a man and, and, and you want to meet a God-fearing, God-loving, mission-minded gospel girl, you want to meet that kind of girl, are, are you better off, you know, doing all the stuff our culture does to tr try to find that woman, or are you more likely to run into her if you go out and get busy about the Father's business? If you're a young woman that wants to find a God-fearing, God-loving, mission-minded man with a backbone and, and a desire to pour out his life for the glory of God, and for the preaching of the gospel. If that's the kind of man you're looking for, you're probably going to find him uh, out doing the Father's work, out on mission for Jesus. I'm not saying that that's 100% the way it always has to happen. I'm just saying, if that's where you're at, I'm trying to help your chances. And really, you got to be careful with that. Don't sign up for some mission trip because you think, oh, that's how I'll find my other half. Dang it, you're missing the point. Stop. Your other half is out there, okay? You're a whole person in Christ. But I'm saying, go, yeah, great, go on a mission trip because you want to tell the whole world about Jesus and as many people as possible get to know that there's hope in the gospel and what, and what God may graciously do while you're on that mission. And you don't have to go on a mission trip. Dear Lord, we, we live in a mission field. Don't misunderstand me. Get busy about kingdom business is the bottom line. And as you do that, 
there's, there's a better chance that, that God can graciously intersect you with somebody else that, that thinks like you and is going to share your values and is going to be really, actually, real deal, sold out and, and, and about um, doing what it is that Jesus has called us to do, okay? I love you. I hope that doesn't come across as trite. I hope it doesn't come across as like I don't get it. Uh, I promise you I do, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to use Ruth's story and Adam's story and, and my story to encourage you. Um, that, that God's not holding good things from you because he's trying to punish you, man. Sometimes, sometimes he's holding that thing because um, he's getting you ready so that he can give it to you and you won't mess it up. <laughs> you won't ruin it. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just means you're doing what all of us need to do, and that's growing in Christ. It's trusting him. Okay? So what have we said? We've said that uh, your other half is not out there somewhere. Okay? We've said that your life is not on a holding pattern until you get married. Please don't live like that. Don't live paralyzed and, and frozen. Well, if I, if I do this, maybe I'll, maybe I'll miss him. Mm. God's sovereign. He's pretty strong and big. <laughs> so he, he'll just keep focused on serving him, doing his will, and, and telling people about him. And, and you'd be surprised who you bump into. Okay? Okay, number three. Um, because of your past, you are not damaged goods. Because of your past, you are not damaged good. We're, goods. We're addressing lies that people that are not yet married believe. Okay? Many people believe that because of past relationships or past sins they've committed or past sins that have been committed against them, that no one will ever want to be with them or love them. I want you to hear me, dear friend. Please hear me if you've ever even for a second entertained the potential of that lie being true. Listen to me. This is what's real. A godly person who understands the gospel, which is the kind of person you want to be with anyways, will never, ever hold these type of things against you. So, if you begin to talk to someone and they are willing to hold your own sin against you, sins that have been committed against you, failings because of past relationships, whatever it is, if they're going to hold that over your head and try to use that to manipulate you, guess what? Kick them to the curb and keep on moving. Because that person doesn't understand the gospel. They don't understand how much they've been forgiven if they're going to try to manipulate and hold you down with your own struggles, sins, issues, fears, whatever it is. It's not, that's not the way gospel people work, okay? I, I, as a matter of hope and example, again, I would call your attention to Ruth. She had two strikes against her, okay? She was a widow, so she'd already been married. And because she was a Moabite and came home with Naomi, she was a foreigner in the land of Boaz, okay? So she had two major strikes against her in that culture, okay? Because most guys wanted to marry an unblemished virgin, and most guys were not looking or even open to the idea of marrying a foreign woman, okay? Uh, a lot of that was because people misunderstood the commands of God, which was to not, not marry foreign women because of who they worship, not because of who they were, right? But a lot of people took that and made that a, a race thing. What God was saying is, don't marry someone that's worshiping another God, because then you're going to have children with them, and you get, then, then, who, how, then who do you worship, right? So he's trying to save them a lot of problems with that, but, but a lot of people took that too far. But culturally, her coming into Israel, she would have had two strikes against her, Okay? If you read the story, you'll see that in her first interaction with Boaz, she was really insecure about who she was because she can't even believe that he would be kind to her because of where she came from. So they hadn't even got to the point where there's any 
understanding that there's interest. She's simply gleaning in his field. He said, you know, he comes up and is just, he's just kind to her. He says, you go ahead. You don't have to try to go to other fields. You can stay here. I've instructed my maidservants that you can drink from the jars that, that they pull up so you can share water breaks with them. And uh, they're, they're not going to hassle you. you. You glean in these fields. You'll be safe. He's just kind to her. Just basic kindness. And she's so insecure about who she is, she's bowed low saying, I can't, I can't believe you would even speak nicely to me knowing that I'm not like your other maidservants. And what she's talking about is that she <clears throat> is a Moabite. So she's definitely insecure about who she is. She has this idea that because of where she comes from, because of her past, people probably are not even going to speak kindly to her, much less would anybody want her. What we see from this What we learn from this is that grace can not only heal the wounds from the past, but it can cause others to see the scars you're ashamed of as precious and beautiful. Can I say that again? I think it's important. What we learn from this is that grace not only heals the wounds from the past in your own heart, but it can cause others to see the scars that you're ashamed of as precious and beautiful. That's a really important promise. For those of you that maybe have believed the lie that because of something in the past, you're damaged goods and that nobody's going to be able to love you or have affection for you. And maybe people have said that to you. Maybe hateful, ignorant people have said things to you based on your past that that would put this yoke around your neck and, and cause you to believe that somehow you're unlovable. It's not true. Absolutely, it's not true. The power of grace changes that. Okay, so that's, your other half is not out there somewhere. You're not in a holding pattern until you get married. Because of your past, you are not damaged goods. Fourthly, you are not being rejected because you're undesirable. Many of you have come to believe that you're being rejected on a continual basis because for some reason you're undesirable. Ruth was not the only one in the story who was insecure. When she comes to Boaz at the threshing floor and she humbly lets him know that she's interested in him, he responds with joy and integrity. But you can also see that he has struggled with insecurity because this is what he says to her. He says, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after younger men, whether poor or rich. See, Boaz was well outside the age that cultural norms would have dictated he should be married. Jewish tradition says somewhere upwards of 80 years old. I, I'm honestly, I can't say that for sure, and I don't know how accurate that is, but here's what we know without a doubt from the story and from his reaction. This guy was way older than people normally were when they got married. And so he is shocked at the fact that Ruth would come and would express interest in him. And he sees this as a great kindness. And you can tell that however many years old he is, Since the time of of 20 or so that he should have been married to where he's at now, he's probably struggled with this insecurity. He's struggled with this idea that, well, there's some reason I can't get a wife. (laughs) There's some reason I'm not married. And these are the type of thoughts that I know people that are not yet married struggle with. These pressures, these cultural norms that get stuck on them. Well, if you're not married by such and such age, well, what's going on? And then you got friends that... God bless their sweethearts, right? That they're, they, they, they're trying to help. They see that you're struggling. It's, you know, so it's always the questions. And meet anybody? Hey, I know this girl. Hey, I know this guy. 
hey, my cousin, right? And they're, they're always trying to do this matchmake thing. They're trying to, they're trying to hook you up and help you. And, and I'm not saying, you know, not for, not for every single person is that a wounding, difficult thing, but for some people it really is. And they have to fake a smile, act like they're interested, then they crumple the number up because they have come to believe there's something wrong with them or something's wrong with them, and that person's never going to like them anyway. And so what I'm going to do is not explore that and not have to go through again this sense of rejection that I've come to believe is because there's something wrong with me. Whether it be that you, you, you think your age is wrong or you think there's something wrong with your appearance, you think there's something wrong with what you do or how you are, your personality, all these types of things that, that, that culture and the enemy would, would keep pouring on you. This, you know, we, we do it inside and outside the church. We, we, we hold up these standards that are unattainable and so if you don't meet that standard then you start to believe this idea that you're going to be continually rejected and so then you, you sit in this place of just utter frustration because you have a desire to be married and it may even be a properly ordered desire. It may even be a godly desire. And yet you've got this counter message constantly saying to you, yeah, that desire is there, but guess what? It's never going to happen because you are fill in the blank. Boaz was clearly blown away that she didn't go after some young guy. And what we need to understand is there was nothing wrong with Boaz. Boaz had not been single all this time because he was undesirable. Boaz was single because God had a plan. Friend, we need to refuse to see our lives in a vacuum of our own story. God the Grand Weaver is working his redemptive purposes throughout all the earth and all of time. Okay, it mattered, get this, it mattered that Boaz waited and married Ruth. And it doesn't matter what he believed about it, ultimately, even if his insecurities had driven part of the reason he was single, ultimately, in the, in the grand scheme of God's redemptive purposes, it mattered a whole lot that Boaz married Ruth. It mattered that Ruth was focused on selfless service to God and to people instead of desperately chasing a husband, because she could have went down to the gate in the low-cut low tunic and caught some dirt bag, right? Could she have done that? Well, I don't know. What about the culture then? Guys, you don't need to know the culture then. If a woman ever goes down to the city gate in a low-cut tunic, she can catch a scumbag. I don't care if you're talking about 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years from now, okay? That'll be true. There'll always be scumbags. It matters that Ruth didn't do that, but she instead focused on serving God and serving her mother-in-law loyally and, 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 and selflessly instead of desperately chasing a husband. Do you know why it mattered? Do you know why it mattered that Boaz waited all those years for Ruth? Do you know why it mattered that Ruth didn't do what, what I'm sure a bunch of her friends were telling her, like, hey, listen, you're a widow. You're not getting any younger. Girl, you better go catch somebody. You better go catch a man. You better do something. You're not getting any younger. Some of you have heard this kind of stuff before. She had no children. Major black mark in that culture, okay? She's in a rough spot. But she didn't let that drive her to some weird, compulsive, golem-like behavior where she's running around throwing herself at somebody, trying to get somebody to love her. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Boaz didn't, didn't just settle and grab some, some any old woman? Why does it matter that Ruth didn't give in to that sinful compulsion to, to be driven to just grab some, any some guy? You know why? Because Boaz and Ruth had a son. You know what his name was? His name was Obed. Obed had a son. You know what his name was? Jesse. Jesse had a son. 
You know what his name was? David. And in the grand scheme of God's redemptive purposes in the earth, it really mattered that David came on the scene because God established a covenant with David's house and said to him, it's going to come through your line, son. The Messiah is going to come. And so you keep tracing the lineage down. Guess who pops up a few hundred years later? That's right, friends. It's King Jesus. And so I'm telling you, it matters for us today that Ruth didn't go throw herself at somebody at the city gate. It matters to us today that, that Boaz didn't give in to this sense that nobody was ever going to love him. It matters to us today because if they had not been married, Obed would not have been born. If Obed had not have been born, Jesse would not have been born. If Jesse had not been born, guess what? We get no David. There's no dead Goliath, and there's no covenant between God and his people. There's no Messiah that comes down through his line. Your life is not in a vacuum. God is weaving his redemptive purposes in all of the earth, and you, friend, are a part of that. It matters. It matters. So take heart. Be encouraged. Because the, the silliest lie of all of these is that when you're in this struggle and you're in this place and it feels dark and lonely, the silliest lie for us to believe is that God is not in it, that God has abandoned you because he has gone out of his way throughout all of his word to say to you, fear not because I'm with you. I'm with you and I'm never, ever, ever going to leave you. It doesn't even matter how you feel. I'm with you. Praise God. Praise God that his promises are true. It matters. <laughs> it matters that Ruth and Boaz got together. It matters that they had Obed, and then Jesse, and then David, and it matters that on down the line comes King Jesus, the Messiah, because had he not come, we would have no hope. There'd be no reason for a hopeful message about any of this. All of us would be driven by sinful compulsions. All of us would live in complete darkness and deception if it had not been for the fact that Jesus came, lived the perfect life that none of us could have, and then died the death that absolutely every one of us deserved and should have, and then he defeated death rose up out of the grave as the firstborn among many, and we're going to follow in his footsteps. See, see, if Ruth had run down to the city gate, guys, we wouldn't have a gospel to preach today. It matters. You might say, well, the Bible's written. I'm not going to be a Ruth or Boaz. Listen to me. You have no idea. You have no idea how long an attorney it's going to take us to, to connect all the dots of what God's been doing in the earth, of whose lives he's intersecting us with on a daily basis, of where all those little pings and all those little intersections of God the grand weaver, where our obedience or disobedience affected God's plan of redemption. He's going to get his will done, bottom line, one way or the other, but I want to work with him, not against him. I want to be a part of it. I want to spend eternity rejoicing with him that he has the power to work through all of human history, including our faults, including our shortcomings, including our sins, and he's getting his will accomplished, and he's driving all this thing down to a singular point. He's got one goal, and it's us and him forever. And your singleness in this season and your ability to trust God in the middle of it absolutely can have bearing not only on the joy and the hope and the goodness you find in your own life, but also on the lives of others. The way you handle this season, friend, of being not yet married is going to determine much of how, in this season of your life, you're able to be or not be a holy reflection of God's goodness and power and strength and love into the lives of others. Because let's be honest. Is it normal? Is it the norm for people that have a strong desire to be married 
and they're not yet married, is it normal for them to be content in that? And I don't mean content like, well, I just don't ever care what happens, and, and i got to fake like I don't have this desire. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about which desire comes first. I'm talking about, is it normal for people that have this strong desire for their first seeking and their most passionate pursuit to be for God and for his kingdom? Is that normal in all of, of uh, if, we did, if we took a poll, is that normal in all of humanity? For that person to be content, for that person to think of themselves as, as whole and full in Christ and ready to go when God does allow them to intersect with somebody that they could enter into a covenant marriage with, for that person to think about that as an opportunity to give instead of get. Is that normal? Is that what's going on in most people's heart and mind out here? The answer is no. And so when you, by the power of God and the grace of God and by the anointing of his Holy Spirit, are able to walk in this time of singleness in a godly way, in a trust-filled way, in a peace-filled way, in a content way, not only are you not going to have to suffer the incredible pain and torture that often happens when you think wrong about these things, not only is it going to benefit your life, but also that's going to reflect to everybody that you come in contact with, hold on, maybe there's something about following this Jesus they serve. Because every other single person I know is broken and busted and jacked up and feeling worthless and, and, and depressed and suffering. Because the culture, oftentimes both in and out of the church, is telling them there's something wrong with them and they better hurry up because they're not getting any younger. And let me just say to church people, friends, we need to be more careful. The way we talk to those that are not yet married. We need to be considerate. We need to... Listen, I know some... <laughs> I know some of you have a Cupid anointing, right? And you're, you're, the, you're the perennial matchmaker, and, and it's because you love folks, and, and I get that. And, and to some degree, listen, that's okay, and maybe you do really know this godly man that, that should at least get the chance to meet this godly woman. And I'm not saying you can never have those conversations, but, but don't let the only thing you ever say to somebody that's, that's single and, and trying to be content and trying to be whole and full in Christ, don't, don't let the only thing you ever say to them is like, hey, what, what's going on? You, you know, talking to anybody? That, that, that type of stuff. And, and, and ask them, you know, where are you at about this? How are you feeling about the fact that, you know, you have this desire to marry, but you're not yet married? Are, are, you, are you struggling? How, how can I be praying for you? You know, push, push past. The, the greatest help you're going to give them is, is probably, you know, not being in, in organic match.com in their life, okay? Is that all right? Is it okay I said that? All right. I mean, I said it, so it's kind of, it is what it is. Um, I, I need you to understand this in light of the gospel. This, this, is, this is the truth. Jesus Christ came and suffered the fullest depths of rejection so that you would never have to believe the lie that you are unloved or unwanted. Friends, please don't leave this precious truth cast away in a corner or, or lying on a table somewhere and, and, and not apply it to where you're at. It just it doesn't... The, there's no potential reality to the idea that you are unloved or unwanted. Jesus came and suffered the most heinous torture and rejection possible so that you would never have to. Here's the thing. If Jesus had not come, if Jesus had not proved to us how loving God is, if Jesus had not proved to us how much God desires to have us by dying on the cross by opening up his veins and letting his perfect sinless blood flow down a rugged cross. If he had not done that, absolutely every one of us should be terrified of the idea that we are unloved or unwanted. There would be no reason for us to be able to say with clear resolve 
You are absolutely desired, wanted, loved, and cherished by the one whose opinion trumps all the rest. I don't care if you've not found a human that yet sees your value and yet sees the beauty of what God has put in you and made in you. I don't care if you've not found that person yet. There is a God in heaven who sees all, even down to the depths, the stuff you hide from everybody else. He sees it all. And he said, I love you. Let me show you how much. And he let his arms be spread out. He let his veins be opened up. He let his blood flow for you. Suffered rejection from everybody so that he could stand in, pay a price, so that you would never. So please don't treat that like it's not there. Please don't live in this place of believing that you deserve rejection or that you are unloved or unlovable. Please don't set that beautiful truth aside because it was so, it was so precious and so priceless. It cost him a lot to buy you the ability to never have to believe you're unlovable. It cost him everything. So please don't treat that like a common thing. I realize there's a lot more to work through. I realize there's a lot more potential lies that you could believe, but I'm going to ask you to take these things that we've talked about and take that overall trump card that God has given you of his gospel and apply it to every single place where maybe deception has creeped in and getting you to think about the fact that you have a desire to be married and are not yet married. You're not rejected. You're accepted. You're not unlovable. You are loved. And the one who has proven how much he loves you, his opinion of you is really the only one that matters. Because, friend, is he not the one that can, can see all? Is he not the one that actually, truly knows you? Can see the parts of your heart that you're even hiding from yourself? And he said, guess what? I see it all, and I still want you. All the things you believe about yourself that, that are worthy of rejection, all the lies that you begin to believe about yourself, all that stuff, he sees it. He sees even your doubt in that. He sees all the things that you're hard on yourself about. Every single one. And his message to you is, I want you. And I love you. And it's forever. Amen. Amen. Take heart. There's reason for hope. And it's in Jesus. May we be a people whose greatest delight and desire is in the Lord. May we be a people who seek God and his kingdom first in all of our lives and in every circumstance. And may we be a people who understand our story is not in isolation, but that God is working his redemptive purposes in the earth, and he allows us to be holy reflections to the world of his sovereign love and power. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.